And so I think that we've, we've really got it backwards in terms of this sort of seeker-friendly approach to churches. We should be saying the exact opposite. We should be saying, look, it's really hard to be a Christian. We want you to come, but we don't know if you can cut it. Welcome to Insights, the podcast of Forerunners of America, where we're here every time to warn the nation from a biblical perspective, but also to help you respond in faith. And I am very excited about today's topic, biblical courage, because it's going to really heavily weigh in on that last part of these podcasts, which is how do we respond in faith? What does this look like? What do we do? And I'm also very excited because we have a guest on Insights that we've never had before, and I want to welcome you, Paul Horrocks from New York City. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, uh, Paul, uh, we're going to hear about your background here in just a moment, but I just want to highlight for everybody from the get-go that you just uh, published a book on this very topic called Tough Guys of the Bible. So anyway, we got a wealth of uh, information here, a reservoir that we've got to get out of you, out of your heart and so forth here in the next little bit. And I'm looking forward to that. But just two quick things just to um, frame our podcast here today. One is that um, people that listen to us on a regular basis, they haven't heard that phrase, biblical courage or tough guys of the, the Bible, your, your book title. But we've been talking on this podcast about contending for the faith, and it was a little over a year ago that God really got my attention and said, this is the time for the body of Christ to contend for the faith. And yes, that, that comes from Jude verse 3, but, but starting within the church, we contend for the faith and the, the purposes of God, but also out in culture. So I'm hoping we can kind of hit both sides of that today. And then, um, and then also, uh, it's just uh, interesting that, that you've, zeroed in on this, uh, on your own podcast called Biblical Courage with that short phrase, which really, to me, is at the heart of this whole contending for the faith idea that we've been talking about here. So anyway, Paul, we got to jump into a whole bunch of stuff, but first, just share a little bit about yourself, you know, where you grew up, how you came to Christ, uh, your day job, you know, just give us a little rundown. Sure. Well, I grew up, uh, my dad's a minister. So I grew up mostly in New Jersey and grew up doing everything you could possibly do in a church. I tell everyone I set up a lot of chairs. I was in the choir. I was in the orchestra. I folded a lot of bulletins. I even mowed the church lawn. <laughs> but uh, when I turned 18 and went off to college, I decided I was done with that. I was done with the obligations of church. And I spent basically from 18 to 30 running away from God and living a very sinful life, living a life that was just dominated by chasing the things of the culture and at the end of my 30s, I, or excuse me, at the end of my 20s, I realized all these things I was chasing was really empty. They were just, there wasn't really much to them. And I would say to people, what happens if I actually succeed? What if I achieve some of these goals? And no one ever had an answer. Hmm. And so I started to say, look, there has to be more to life than chasing just money and fame and, and power and, and women and so forth. And so I started coming back to church. I started reading apologetic books and I started reading the Bible for the first time as an adult. And it was really, honestly, uh, one of the things that was most compelling was the flaws of the men in the Bible. When I read the Bible as an adult and I saw how flawed uh, even Abraham was, even you know, the apostles were, and I thought, well, why would you expose your flaws? And it was because of that that I really thought, this must be true. Hmm. Because if I wrote a religion that was fake, I would absolutely make myself look 
terrific. I would never make myself look the way that these men made themselves look. And the only reason we know these stories is because they shared these stories with us. So that's really my story of coming back to church. It took about three years, and I tell everyone that uh, I was really holding back in certain parts of my life, and it wasn't until I really went all in that I really felt like I was back and, and really all in for Jesus. So can you just tell us a little bit more about the three years, meaning it sounds like you were wrestling at a very significant level. Can you just give a little bit more on that? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I came back and I grew up with it and had this idea of, look, most people who grow up in a certain religion end up that religion. And so I thought, are we all just brainwashed? Whatever your parents taught you, that's kind of what you believe as an adult. And I just felt like I needed to escape that, uh, even though now I understand, well, even if you teach your children nothing, you're also brainwashing them, right? No matter what you teach them, you're teaching them something. And so it just was a, a tough process for me, but it was also hanging on to worldly things. And in particular, for me, it was sexual sin, that I wasn't ready to give up my sexual sin. And I was sort of wrestling with God saying, look, God, can't I just give more money or volunteer more time or, or do all these other things? Can I do extra on that side and just keep this part to myself? And I realized you can't, you have to go all in. It's the toughest parts uh, of your life or the toughest things that are, that are challenges for you that you really have to give over to Jesus to hmm. truly be all in. Well, maybe we can do another podcast sometime on the importance of repentance and uh, why believers, and you were, sound like you were a believer moving into that more and more, but there was repentance issues. Uh, anyway, uh, repentance actually brings freedom. <laughs> and I know that's what you found, and I'm so glad that you are doing what you do now in the ministry and so forth. Uh, by the way, are you also in full-time ministry now like your father? Yeah, I'm not. I have been an um, executive and an entrepreneur working in a number of different companies, mainly in financial services. I have done a lot of ministry outside of that. I, I served on a number of boards. I've been involved in a lot of mercy and justice ministry, and I have done things on my own. I, I started a, something called Justice NYC to challenge men specifically on why their sexual sin is causing a lot of these justice issues. So I've been really involved in ministry as a layperson, but not involved in full-time ministry. Hmm. Wow. I wish we could explore all of this, but um, I'm going to shift us a little bit to the topic of today, which is biblical courage. And so how did you first get interested in specifically, I mean, you wrote a whole book on this thing. How did you specifically get interested in biblical courage? So it was really based on my own experience of coming back to church, because what happened is when I was a kid and I was growing up in this church, uh, when the culture and the Bible came into conflict, typically the people in the church went with the Bible. It's not that they weren't sinful, they were, but their worldview was based on the Bible is right and the culture is wrong if there's a conflict. When I came back to church in New York City, what I saw is that most of the people that I attended church with, when the Bible and the culture came into conflict, they went with the culture. And I was very confused by this. When I was first coming back, I, first I thought, well, this just must be an aberration. But as I got to meet more and more people, I realized like, oh no, this is a trend. Hmm. But this is a very common thing. And I saw that the leaders of at least some of the churches that I attended in New York City were not addressing this. We're not talking to people about, hey, you can't continue to have these unbiblical views and still be a Christian. You need to choose. Are you going to follow Jesus? Are you going to follow the culture? And so I just, I saw that there was not a celebration of biblical courage. What there was instead was 
almost a celebration of biblical compromise or Christian compromise, I guess is the way I should say it, hmm. that there's this idea that you'll hear in New York City circles of seek the peace of the city, which is out of Jeremiah 29, where Jeremiah is telling the um, Israelites who've been taken off to Babylon, hey, you're going to be there for a while. You'll be there for 70 years. So seek the peace of the city. But what they really end up saying, uh, and, and I don't think it's this is the intention, but it is what ends up happening, is that they're really talking what, if you ever read Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail, they're talking about a negative piece, which is the absence of tension, instead of a positive piece, which is the presence of justice. Hmm. And so what I saw is that when they were saying, seek the peace of the city, what people heard or how they interpreted it was, don't get into conflict with the culture. And the only way you can avoid conflict with the culture is to compromise because Satan doesn't compromise, right? Right. Uh, right. If, if you, um, if, if you want to have an, an absence of tension or you want to avoid conflict, you're going to have to do the compromising. And so what I saw again is just, there wasn't this celebration of biblical courage. The people who, who were willing to speak up and say, no, the Bible is right. And the culture is wrong and endure that tension, endure a lot of times it would be persecution of people either not liking you, not, not um, you know, ostracizing you socially, hurting you economically, you know, whatever aspect of persecution, that's what I saw. And I thought, we really need to celebrate this more. So, okay, um, you're coming back into church, you're seeing this, um, uh, like, conflict or this, uh, it's an incongruency here, <laughs> like, what in the world's going on? Okay, I'm just, I'm, just thinking like some of the issues that were important that stuck out where the church was, let's just say, acquiescing to the culture, not speaking out. Can you unpack that a bit? Yeah. I mean, it tends to be the areas that you would expect. It tends to be, when does life begin? It tends to be, what is the definition of marriage? And it tends to be sexual sin. And what I observed in New York City, again, this is, I don't want to ascribe this to all churches throughout the country, but certainly in churches in New York City, sexual sin among singles and even among married men is fairly common. We don't look different than the world. I mean, we maybe look a little bit different, but it's not dramatically different than the world. And so what I saw is that the leadership wasn't talking about it, that they would talk about it once a year, really lightly. And my point was, Look, the culture talks about this every single day. The culture's view of sex is on every magazine cover, in every television show, in every movie, you know, in the media, in the news. They're constantly promoting it. So you get confirmation about the culture's view of sex probably 10 to 20 times a day. Mm-hmm. If we talk about it once a year in church, who's going to win that battle? Of course the culture's going to win that battle. If you're seeing this over and over again. And the other thing I saw is that when you walked into church, for most people, if they don't have a background, I, I had a background in it. And so I understood what it was supposed to look like. But if you're new to Christianity and you come in and you look around and what you see is that everyone else is a single who's sleeping around, you think, oh, I guess that's what it means to be a Christian. You come to church on Sunday and then you still sleep around with your girlfriend. So there just was this um, inconsistency that we were talking about. Uh, changing lives and, and Jesus really changing your heart, but it really wasn't showing up in um, in a lot of people. And, and and again, I don't want to ascribe this to all people. There were some people who were incredibly faithful, who were really all in for Jesus, but there was a, a large number that were not. Okay, so to do anything in today's culture, and what I 
really appreciate about what you're saying, Paul, is both the um, church culture, but then we not only want to make it influence in within the church, which you've really highlighted here, but also if we're in the right place, as Amos puts it, the plumb line straight with God within the church, within our lives, then we can be more of an influence, more of salt and light, see more fruit outside the church. And that's obviously really what we want. We want to see people come to faith, of course, among a hundred other things we want, would like to see. Okay, but let's back up a little bit. Like, uh, first, uh, biblical examples of courage. Like, what sticks out to you? Like, we got to be inspired here that we're not just going to, again, go along, to get along with the culture. And again, that even means church culture. Yeah, and you know, to your point about the churches, I always say to people, we can't change the culture of the city or of our country unless we first change the culture of our church, right? We, we're not gonna be able to influence people unless we really look different. And when you look at the Bible, there are these great examples of men who had courage. And so one example we put in the book is Gideon. So if you don't know Gideon's story, uh, the Amalekites and the Midianites are attacking the Israelites every year. And they have 135,000 men, and they're basically trying to starve them out by stealing all their food. And so God tells Gideon, go and fight them. And this is, Israel's weak, and, and they don't have the men to do this. So they're able to gather 32,000 men. So it's 32,000 versus 135,000. And God says, that's too many for me. So he cuts it down to 10,000. And God says, that's still too many for me. So he cuts it down to 300. So at this point, it's 300 versus 135,000. It's, it's ridiculous. It's a suicide mission. And yet Gideon goes. Gideon follows God, uh, and they surround the camp with, uh, with torches and with trumpets. They put the enemy into confusion, and God causes the enemy to turn on themselves, and these 300 defeat this 135,000. And so you, you can read that story starting in Judges 6. It's just an incredible story of courage, of thinking there is no way we can win this battle. And yet Gideon went because he believed that God was greater than these 135,000 men who were there to kill. Hmm. So that's one story that I love. But by the way, before, before you move on, um, wasn't there a bit of a wrestling with Gideon, like wrestling with this before God a bit, before he just did jump in and said, I'm going to do it. Uh, hell or high water, I'm going to do it. Yeah. What's incredible about Gideon's story is that you see the compassion of God. A lot of times people think in the Old Testament that it's a harsh God, it's an angry God. But here, uh, God comes to, and, and it's the angel of the Lord is the way they describe it, meets with Gideon and shows him a series of signs. Starts by having fire consume a, um, an offering that Gideon has put on this rock. And so he sees this fire come and consume this. For most people, that's going to be the most dramatic thing you see in your life. And you're like, okay, this is real. But Gideon kept asking for more signs. He asked for uh, a fleece to be dry while the ground was wet. And then he asked for the fleece to be wet while the ground was dry. And so he asked for all these additional signs. And you see God patiently taking him through this, giving him this comfort, and basically getting him to a place where he has enough courage and strength to take on this large army. So I love that story because not only do you see the courage of Gideon, you see the compassion of God to be patient with him, to allow him to get to the place he needs to be so that he'd be willing to have that fight. And so Gideon obviously does respond in faith in something that I, I just think is so helpful. It's faith, uh, faithfulness throughout each day, but now we're, God's calling Gideon, and he will call us into a moment where we need to not just be faithful, like studying our Bible every day, 
but we need to be full of faith. And that's where Gideon responds. Amazing. So, okay, do you have uh, another uh, standout uh, example? Yeah, one I love uh, is Stephen. Because when we think of Stephen, we think of him as a martyr. We think of him as a victim. But wow, he wasn't. The reason, if you, if you don't know Stephen's story, he's proclaiming Jesus and men who cannot uh, compete with his wisdom and with his uh, apologetics explaining Jesus, basically bring him before the Sanhedrin Council, which is the Jewish Leadership Council. And he, instead of uh, responding with fear, basically reads him the riot act. These are the experts in the religious law and, and, and uh, the Torah and so forth. And he basically gives them a history lesson and they get so angry with him that they basically take him outside the city and they stone him to death. And even as they're stoning him to a death, he says, God, don't hold this sin against these men. And so you see this incredible courage to go and confront these men, to speak truth to them when it's difficult, when he understands that they uh, have the ability to, to kill him, which of course they did. And then the courage to say, I'm not going to hold a grudge against these men who are literally stoning me to death. I'm going to ask God to forgive them. So I think when we think about Stephen, again, don't think of him as a victim. Don't think of him as, oh, poor Stephen, who was martyred. Think of him as an incredibly courageous man who went and did what God asked him to do. Well, I think it's so vital that um, we realize that it's not just for a couple people like Gideon or Stephen, but what happens then after Acts chapter 7, Acts 8 introduces a great persecution that comes. And now it's just, you know, people like you and me, the average Christian, now we have to stand up for the faith. We have to uh, be courageous. And um, it is, it's for all believers. Okay, Paul, so give us some modern-day examples. Uh, we can stand on the shoulders of these biblical heroes, but what are you seeing today that inspires you? Yeah, so in the book, we talk about some examples of men from my dad's ministry, as well as other Christian men who are incredible. And so I'll give you two quick stories. One is a guy named Chris. He was in my dad's ministry. He went to the church, and, and I knew him growing up. He was a father of five kids, was married. He was the only breadwinner. And one day he goes to the office, he's a salesperson, and the owner of the company says, look, we're going to change our billing practice and start overbilling our clients. And he announces this to the sales team. And immediately the sales team looks at him because Chris always talks about his faith. And they're wondering, is your faith real? Or when it's going to hurt you, are you going to stick to it? So Chris goes home, prays with his wife, knows what he has to do, sleeps at peace that night. And the next day he goes in and he speaks to the owner and he says, look, I wanted to work for your company. You sold a great product at a fair price, but this new deal strikes at the heart of that. And for what? For a little bit of extra profit. So regretfully, I must resign. Now, Chris had no other job. He had five kids to feed. He's the only breadwinner. And he knew that God could provide for him somehow. But what ended up happening in that particular circumstance is that the owner said, you know what? forget that deceptive billing practice. We're not going to do it. And so God basically provided Chris an income by changing the owner's mind. But the other thing that happened is that Chris kept his witness, that all these people at work who saw him saw that it wasn't just a theory. His faith wasn't just a theory, that he, in fact, was willing to live it out when it was hard, when it was difficult for him, when he had to take risk. 
But the other thing that he did that I love about that story is he blessed all those people because all those people who were salespeople, they were going to have to lie. They were going to have to choose. Do I lie or do I lose my job? Because Chris spoke up, they didn't have to. And so he was a blessing to all these people in his company. So I love that story because it's a much more common story that the stories in the Bible are very dramatic often. And we probably aren't going to find ourselves in those circumstances where we're like Elijah calling down fire from heaven, but we probably will find ourselves in circumstances where we're asked to do things like lie at our job. And are we going to live out our Christian faith or are we going to basically conform to what our company wants us to do in order to keep our job? And that's like a perfect illustration too of something that um, it's really important to me. I think a lot of Christians and that is when we contend for the faith or what you're talking about today, biblical courage, um, I think it's easy for some of us just immediately jumping, well, I need to be more bold in sharing my faith. And, and honestly, we probably do need to be more bold in sharing our faith. However, it's on every topic. Are we standing up for God's righteous principles? You're using a, a, a business example, but it's like, it's not only sharing our faith. So of course, I pray that we'll all be more bold in sharing our faith, but will we be bold in being salt in light in every aspect? And then, like you just said, um, uh, Chris's testimony is secured in, as, a, as a strong believer, and maybe he can lead more people to Christ through taking that first step. So, I mean, it's just all connected in a way. Absolutely. Okay, so you, you said you had a couple examples. I'm, I'm yeah. wait, waiting for this next one. So the, the next one is a story uh, going back to 2011. Incredible story. There's a pastor in the middle of nowhere, Nigeria, and he is in an area that is dominated by the Boko Haram terrorist group. And they have burnt down his church and he rebuilt it. And they came to his house one day. He's in the shower. They pull him out of the shower. He's in front of his two kids. And they say to him, look, you have to stop talking about Jesus. And this pastor says, Jesus said, if I deny him before men, he'll deny me before the father. So I can't do that. And so they say to him again, this is your last chance. You have to stop talking about Jesus. And he says again, Jesus said, if I deny him before men, he'll deny me before the father. So I can't do that. So they shoot him and they kill him. And then they have a debate. Should they shoot his son? Who's about 14 years old at the time. And they shoot his son and they kill him. They leave his daughter alive and they tie her up. And another pastor from a different town comes, gets her, gets her out of the country. And so fast forward to 2014. She ends up telling this story in Europe, in the U.S. She tells it in front of Congress. She tells it uh, on the news. I saw her in Greta Van Susteren. And millions of people heard this story. And what I love about this story is that this man in the middle of nowhere, Nigeria, who's a pastor, has no idea. He can't conceive of how his story could be told to millions of people. Hmm. He just followed God because that's what God called him to do. He was unwilling to cave. And most people would say, oh, he just should have denied Jesus just for the, for the sake of his kids, to protect his kids. And I think no one would have blamed him had he done that. But because he was faithful, because he followed God, the witness and the evangelism in his death was just enormous and probably dwarfed what he did in his life. And so I just love that, that we can see that example, even though, again, he would have no idea how God could use his death. He just decided to be faithful. And the last part of the story I'll mention is that I can't find this guy's name. 
I searched all these articles and they just call him a Nigerian pastor. His daughter is Deborah Peter and they mention her, but I don't know his name. He's got this incredible story, but God knows his name hmm. and God is pleased with him. And so the message I, I want to give to people from that story is follow God. Even when you think no one's left looking, even when it's difficult, because you don't know how God can use it. Paul, you're kind of giving us a theme here. Uh, you know, uh, Gideon uh, could have lost his life. He didn't. Praise God for that huge victory, but could have. Stephen, Acts 7, as you described, he did lose his life. Your friend Chris could have lost his job, but instead the whole company is transformed back into a more righteous posture. And then this Nigerian pastor did die, but it's all, it's all faith risk. It's like you don't know the outcome in advance, and it could go either way, but will you do it anyway? Yes, that's exactly it. And that's the message of the book. Just follow God when it's hard. Because if you do it, it's going to be the hardest thing you ever do, but it's worth it. Okay, so Paul, can you just, I mean, you've obviously studied this uh, way more than most Christians, uh, the vast majority of us. Can you just step back and give us a little bit of a bird's eye view in terms of um, courage, lack of courage related to America? Like, how are we doing? So you're talking about the church in America in particular. Correct. Yeah, so... I went back to church in New York City. I've attended churches in other places. So, you know, most of my experience and information is about New York City. Although when I talk to people around the country, it sounds pretty similar to my experience. And what I see is that churches in New York City were more focused on growing numbers rather than true discipleship. That they didn't want to talk about the tough topics. They didn't want to do anything that would get them in the news, that would get them called names. And as a result, the people in the pews, they weren't being taught or really equipped. How do I deal with this? How do I deal with this difficult topic where people in the culture are going to call me names, they're going to criticize me, or maybe they're going to persecute me economically or socially if I don't conform to them? And as a result, we have a, a, a lot of Christians who are saying, hey, the culture's right and the Bible's wrong. And I, I think it's just, quite frankly... Uh, Scandalous. A lack of leadership. It's a, it's a lack of leadership. And I don't understand it. And I, I certainly talked to pastors and I heard excuse after excuse after excuse. And, and I remember growing up thinking, oh, who would ever want to be a pastor? It's a terrible job. And, and looking at how my dad did it. And I never understood that some people want to be pastors for the, uh, really for the glory of it, which is an awful way to say it, but, but really they, they want to be a pastor of a large church and people come and listen at their feet and listen to their wisdom and so forth. But I tell everyone, you know, preaching is like 5% of a pastor's job. Your job is all about discipleship. And that is not the part that you see as well. Obviously you see the part where they preach on Sunday, but if you're not interested in discipling people, you shouldn't be a pastor. Just don't go into it. If you, if you want to go in and, and you were hoping that lots of people will come to your church that's not the right attitude. The right attitude is you want to see transformed lives and you have to be willing to be persecuted. You have to be willing to be called names and you have to be willing to lead in that area because if you're not willing to be persecuted and to be called names, there's no way your congregation is going to follow suit. 
when you say that, I can't help but to think of John chapter 6, where Jesus even looked at his own 12. So it's not like Jesus has a whole lot of people there. I mean, he had some that were leaving right at that moment, but then he even looks at the 12. Do you want to leave also? You know what? I'd love it for you to stay, and we're all going to give our lives for this thing. But if you need to go, here's the door. And I love in John chapter 6, when he says, hey, you have to eat my body and drink my blood, and people are saying, this is a hard saying, who can accept it? He doesn't say, oh, it's just a metaphor. Let me put it in language that you'll understand. He just says, that's what you got to do. And they say, all right, we're out of here. So I think it's interesting that, that Jesus didn't feel the need to soften his language or change his tone or explain things in more detail. He was saying, you need to conform to what I'm saying. And that's it. That's what it takes to follow me. And yet I feel like in the church today, we say, let's talk about the popular parts of the Bible and hope you figure out the difficult parts on your own. Well, that's just not a realistic view. We have to tell people about the difficult parts of the Bible. We have to equip them and train them and explain it to them. And the thing is, people will respond. I think that men will respond to that. And and again, one of the things that uh, I talk about in the book is that if you want men to step up to something, don't tell them it's easy. Tell them it's hard. Hmm. That if you tell men, hey, it's easy to be a Christian, they're less interested in it. If you tell them, you know what? It's actually really hard to be a Christian, which is the truth. They're much more likely to say, oh, okay, well, tell me about that. What's it going to take? What do I have to do? And so I think that we've, we've really got it backwards in terms of this sort of seeker-friendly approach to churches. We should be saying the exact opposite. We should be saying, look, it's really hard to be a Christian. We want you to come, but we don't know if you can cut it. And now I think you'll see more and more men. <laughs> and step then they up. rise up. <laughs> yeah, men will rise up. Uh, I, I just have to circle back a little bit on John chapter six in light of what you just said. Um, eat, eating my flesh and drinking my blood, such a hard saying that we will be one with him in life and in death. And, uh, Paul, we know each other a bit, but I don't know if you know this part of my story, but really over the last several months, God has been relentless with me about um, not necessarily focusing on John 6, but other scriptures and other examples of that we suffer for Christ. It is part of the Christian life. And and I'm just going to say my personal testimony just here in the last few months, and it's taken me a while to clarify this in my own heart and spirit, but until I came to the point absolute surrender, meaning anything in life, and yes, if necessary, death. There was like a fog in me, in my mind, my heart. It was like, I'm doing ministry. This is good. I'm glad when we see fruit. But God was like, no, no, I'm saying things. John chapter 6, which is, of course, in First Peter, the whole book of First Peter is about this topic. But it's like, once I thought, I got to back up, I thought I had already made this decision of complete lordship many, many times in the past, and we're going to be courageous and all these kinds of things that we're talking about today. I thought I had, and I probably had on some level, but God just took me deeper and deeper here more recently. And then once that final surrender of everything, that's when I got the clarity. That's when things went to another level. So I guess in summary, I'm just saying, I don't think we get where we want to be as Christians until we really settle this in our hearts. There's a great uh, speech by Martin Luther King Jr. And he talks, uh, this is, I think, maybe months or maybe a year or so before his death. And he basically says, if you haven't found something in life that you're willing to die for, 
and I'm, I'm paraphrasing because he says it so eloquently, but he says, you may go on living, but really you had a spiritual death. You died when you refused to speak up for justice, right? You, you, you died when you refused to speak up for what you were called to do. So it's really a powerful thing that, yeah, you may go on living, but if you don't give your life to Jesus, you're not really living. You're not really doing what you were called to do. And again, the reason we called the book, The Tough Guys of the Bible is we want to make a point that when you follow God, it is the most masculine thing you can do because it's what you're designed to do. Hmm. And when you do that, you know, most people, when you do that, you'll be considered masculine by the culture. These men that we identify in the Bible and these men that we identify more recently, they would be considered masculine by the culture. But the important thing is you're going to be masculine in God's eyes because you're following him, which is what you were designed to do. Okay, so this brings up a little bit of a sub-point. Um, uh, your life, ministry, calling, your message, it seems like anybody, men or women, get, can get a uh, huge benefit from this and, and embracing the message and applying it. But it seems like, as you just sort of implied that you have a bit of a slant towards men and masculinity. Could you just explain a little bit like why is that? Or, um, you know, indeed, are you more focused on men? And so certainly the book was written for men. Uh, this podcast continues the work of the book and tells stories of biblical courage, and it's both men and women, but it, it is predominantly focused on men. And the reason I'm focused on men is my observation coming back to the church is how few men there were, that when you show up to church, it's predominantly women. You know, sometimes you hear it's a 60-40 split. Sometimes it's 65-35, you know, depending on uh, who does the survey. But churches are just not filled with men. And then go out and volunteer on, at a Mercy and Justice event, and it is all women. And so you, you just see that, wow, what's going on? We're missing men in the culture who are willing to follow Jesus. And it creates a whole bunch of problems. It creates a, certainly a leadership vacuum, number one. It, it creates this mismatch. There, there's a lot of uh, women who are uh, single, who are Christian, who follow Jesus, and they can't find Christian men to, to marry because the, the math just doesn't work out. And so that's why I'm so focused on men. I think if we can get more men, uh, certainly there, there's a lot of evidence that when men follow Jesus, the whole family will follow Jesus. And it'll strengthen our churches. Wow, really well put. Um, so, another example of you—not um, not only mercy and justice ministry, but well, I guess it's connected. But you were just on January twenty-first. I want to say you were in Washington D.C., um, standing in solidarity with the pro-life movement and trying to help move this forward. So, just talk a little bit of, about that. Like first. Often abortion is seen more as a women's issue, and they're doing the fighting, or the I would use the word contending for the faith. And, and yet here you are as a guy, uh, you know, why are you there kind of uh, a, a thing I, is what I'm asking. But also um, give us as men a little bit of vision for that particular issue. Yeah, I am really passionate about the pro-life movement. It was a confusing thing to me when I came back to church that more churches were not speaking up about this. And you do see incredibly courageous women who are leading this fight and leading the battle to speak up for those who can't speak for themselves, the unborn. You'll hear a lot of people say, well, this is a women's issue. Men shouldn't be involved. Well, that's, of course, ridiculous that, that uh, 
half of the babies that are aborted are men. That you can't get pregnant without a man. There's a man involved in this, whether you like it or not. These men are fathers, even if they uh, ultimately the, the two of them choose abortion. So let's uh, still let's fathers. let's own this as men were as culpable as women, and let's start owning this and in, in in getting in this battle as God would call us to. Absolutely. And what you see over and over again when you talk to people who work at pregnancy care centers, you say to the woman, "Well, why are you having this um, abortion?" And it's because I don't have any support. And you hear over and over, if one people would support, one person would support me, I think I could have this child. Well, who's the person who's supposed to be supporting her? The man who got her pregnant. That's the person who's supposed to be supporting her. And so I think that there needs to be a challenge to men. The other thing is the other side in this who are in favor of abortion, of course, they have no problem with men promoting abortion. They have no problem with men pressuring women to have abortions. They have no problem with men conducting abortions and, and, and being the doctors and so forth. So the culture is fine with men being involved in this as long as you have their point of view on this. And so it's ridiculous for Christian men to be scared out of or, or uh, you know pushed out of having this conversation and, and participating in this. We're involved. We need to um, speak up and we need to lead. We need to challenge other men. We need to equip our churches. We need to explain this issue. And we basically need to, um, to talk about God's point of view and how God loves these children and they're made in his image. Amen. Amen. If I just put a little footnote on that is that uh, Renee and I, from time to time in the past, we have gone to pro-life marches and those kinds of things. And I remember specifically one in Madison, Wisconsin, um, obviously kind of wildness, uh, is, and it truly is. We lived there for nine years. It's not just the reputation. But anyway, we were there, and there, there were the other side that were right in your face saying some chant like, ha, ha, hey, ho, all hate and bigotry have got to go, saying the pro-life people are filled with hate and bigotry. And you know what? It's one of the most important things as a man that I did. And I want to just say, and speaking of challenging men like you're uh, admonishing us to do, Paul, is why would we send out our wives or the women of our churches to go do that march when there is volatility in the air? There are people out there that hate you. Where are the men? The men should be there standing strong and even leading our wives in such a, a thing. And we want to make our voices known. This is, this is about faith risk, and um, it's unfortunate we're not seeing more of it. Well, Okay, Paul, you're the expert here on biblical courage. Do you have, um, by the way, do you have something else to say on that? Or, um... Yeah, I just wanted to add that there are incredible men who are involved in the pro-life movement who have incredible courage, and so we should be celebrating them and talking about them. There's just not enough of them. And, and so I, I, don't want to, I don't want anyone who's listening who's a man who's been so involved in the pro-life movement to think that we're overlooking your contribution. You're doing a great job. Keep doing it. We just want more people that look like you involved in the movement. Amen. Well, okay, we want to be a little bit practical. I think actually this has been super practical already from beginning to end, but I want you, Paul, to just really give us traction here. Any specific steps or perspectives you want to give us here that, that we can apply to our lives that'll help us in biblical courage? Yeah, I think as individuals, what we really want to do is you got to be willing to take risk in little things, that if you're not willing to take economic risk, that maybe I don't get that promotion, or maybe I lose my job, uh, or you're not willing, willing to take social risk, that maybe I don't get invited to the right parties and so forth, 
you're not going to take those big risks when it really comes, when you're that pastor in Nigeria and somebody puts a gun to your head, there's no way you're going to be willing to live for Jesus in that moment. If you're not willing to live for Jesus, because, Hey, someone might not give you a promotion at work because you hold the wrong view on, uh, you know, something that the, the culture finds offensive. So my point to people is just live it every day. And in the little things, make sure you are living out your Christian faith. And then for churches, we need a lot more equipping. We have to take these issues head on. We have to talk about them and we're going to be criticized. Oh, you Christians only care about sex and you don't talk about other things and you don't love people. And they're going to call us names and they're lies, but you have to go beyond the lies. You can't be influenced by these lies and then move away from these topics because you're afraid of what people might say. You have to go right at them and say, no, we're going to equip our people. We're going to talk about these difficult issues. We're going to say, this is what the Bible says. And then we're going to give you practical steps and how to navigate those issues in the culture. Wow. Um, can you keep going? I mean, <laughs> that's yeah, I, great. I think, that's great. I just feel like there's more in your heart. Yeah. I mean, I, I think a great example of that is, look, if you're at a church and the majority of the singles are participating in the hookup culture, you got to go right at that. You got to have a conference on that and say, hey, we're going to do this. And you don't just have a conference once a year, or excuse me, um, one time. You have it once a year. You have a whole Bible study course on it. You have a whole Sunday school class on it, right? You really dig into that. You talk about it from the culture. You challenge the elders of your church and all the men of your church to challenge other men. You explain to people how to talk about it. So you have to really talk about that a lot. And, and people might say, oh, you, you know, you're, you're talking about something that's not that important. It's just a minor thing. No, it's not a minor thing. It starts in Genesis. Read Leviticus. It's uh, you know, an entire chapter on all these ways that God says, don't be like the culture around you. Read the Jerusalem Council. And the Jerusalem Council, when they're talking about well, what are the things that are important for you Gentiles to follow that are really uh, coming from this Jewish law, one of the four things they talk about is sexual immorality. It's so important. Read Revelation and talk about in uh, two of the seven churches, it talks about God challenging them on sexual immorality. And so this idea of sexual morality, it's not a little thing that's mentioned once in a while in the Bible. It is all throughout the Bible. It is a major. And so if your church isn't talking about it, they're missing out on something that is a major theme in the Bible. And as a result, people are just not equipped for it. So I just, I think it has to flow through your whole church, how we equip people on these topics. And whether it's sexual uh, compromises, sins, so forth, or it's other issues, um, the Bible repeatedly, in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament, but uh, in the New Testament calls us to be holy, like we have to actually get a vision in our hearts to be stirred up in this direction, um, you know, in, in terms of, of what, what God is actually calling us to. Okay. Let me, let me just add yeah. to that. I'm not asking you to go challenge people outside of your church. These are people inside your church. These are people who are raising their hands saying, I want to know what the Bible says. They showed up on Sunday to learn what the Bible says. So I'm not asking you to go yell at, at your, uh, you know, your cube mate at, at your office who's not a Christian. This is about just talking to people who have, who have expressed an interest in learning what the Bible says. So that's what we're talking about. Wow, awesome. The title of your book is Tough Guys of the Bible. When was it published and how do we get a copy? So we just published it this fall, and it's available anywhere books are sold online. 
and basically you can go and, and uh, purchase it. It's available as a audiobook, it's available as a um, ebook or as a physical book. And you can also go to uh, the website biblicalcourage.com if you want to hear podcasts of stories of biblical courage. And we have a link to, to sign up for the book as well there. And that's basically how you can get it. Awesome. And thank you, Paul, for being with us. It's great, great, so rich. And thank you for joining us on Insights. And what we're really unpacking today, just to say the obvious, is biblical courage is at the heart of contending for the faith. Let's help each other be courageous. And uh, like, subscribe, forward this to to friends, of course, uh, make a comment at YouTube, but you can also find us at uh, Spotify. The, the audio podcast is at Spotify as well as Apple Podcasts and the SoundCloud. I look forward to being with you next time on Insights. Insights.